I'm redoing that all. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the sixth episode of Taps and Patience, where I get attacked by flies. My name is AJ Huff, and I am here with my co-host, Harrison. How are we doing this evening? I am being attacked by flies. For, for people watching the video, you can see me, like, freaking out at him over here. Flies are the worst. But, uh, yeah, how are you doing? <laughs> well... Good on the fly front. We had an invasion a, a few months back in the middle of summer, and I stole my parents' salt gun and went to town. It was like a, it was like a full on war on flies. Yeah, I, I've used those before, and those are awesome. It was it was um, it it turned a horrible situation into somewhat of an enjoyable one for a little <laughs> bit. So we have horse neighbors, um, and then also. My wife has a deal with them where they can drop off their good manure into our backyard and it becomes, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, flies. Uh, so we can use it as compost. And the side effect of that is it attracts flies. Normally not a huge deal, um, except when you're trying to podcast. However, I got my new laser and I left, I was doing some testing on it. I didn't have the ventilation set up all the way. And so I just like hooked up the, the ventilation hose to the laser and then stuck the other end of the hose outside. And Mm -hmm. I left my door open for, you know, just a couple hours while I was playing with that. And the shop just filled with flies, like plague level flies. And I, I, I spent a long time just killing them with a fly swatter, with a fly swatter, which I can't find right now at a very unfortunate time. And then eventually I put up some fly, like those hanging fly paper things. Mm -hmm. And that did a pretty good job of clearing them out. We're not really at um, like flypocalypse levels of flies anymore, but there's always like just one or two around to land on you and bug you. Yeah. And and honestly, flies aren't too bad unless they start pestering you. Like I'm okay if I see a fly here and there. It's when they start landing on you and... And like flying in your ears or face, and it's just like, okay, now you gotta die. <laughs> yeah, there's like different kinds of flies, and there's flies that I would define as like flighty, and there's flies that I would define as like sticky. And there's the flies that just kind of buzz around you; those are fine; those don't cause any problems. But then there's these ones, and these ones are are what I'm calling sticky flies, and they want to land on your nose, they want to land on your eyes, they want to land on your podcast mic, and. <laughs> just generally drive you insane. So I, if I look like a crazy, oh, I see the fly swatter. <laughs> he, he, for those of you who didn't know before the podcast started, he has been looking for the fly swatter for a while, trying to find it so that he can go after these flies. I went on a rampage the other day and I literally killed probably a hundred flies in an hour, an hour and a half. It was not my most productive day ever in terms of like machining and stuff, but I killed a lot of flies. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. now I feel armed. Anyway, how was your week? <laughs> uh, you know, it was it was good. It's been really good. Um, we had our our second most profitable week ever. Um, profitable or and, revenue? Uh, well, I guess revenue would be a better way to look at it. Re- not revenueable, but yeah. Um, and I was doing it's 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 interesting because um, we are 
not nearly as far along as I'd like to be at this point, which is not mm-hmm. good. But by the same token, in the last two months, the amount of revenue we have been bringing in is substantially increasing and it's gaining momentum. So that's good. a positive sign. Um, and we went to a, uh, on Wednesday of last week, we went to a rather big business around here. Um, and he sent, and they sent us a, um, bunch of parts to quote, which, um, the quote that we sent back was more than we have made year to date. Okay. But to put that in perspective, yeah. So we've been doing this literally a year. And if you take all the money we've made within the last year, this quote was larger than that. So (laughs) good thing. Assuming they Yeah. And that was only for one type of part. Um, so if, if some of that starts coming through and they start giving us work, um, we'll be doing quite well, I think. Um, sweet. And, and, and then a different company we had for the very first time, a customer who just reached out to us and they said, Hey, here's some parts. Here's a PO. Don't worry about a quote. Just let us know when you can get them done. And that was a really, really cool feeling of like, Oh, they're just gonna, they trust us enough now that they're just going to send it to us. They just want us to get it done. They don't, no, no back and forth. No, none of this. They said, all right, here's the parts, PO, let's go. And, yep. and uh, so that was a, that was a really warm and fuzzy feeling. Um, and a little bit scary, honestly, at first, because mm-hmm. uh, if you look at our Instagram, um, did you, have you looked at our Instagram recently? I have for the most part been keeping up. Yeah. Did you see those big rollers with all the grooves in them? Yeah. Okay. So our lathe can hold 16 inch parts of stick out. It can machine 16 inches of stick out. Um, You can technically hold parts that are longer. You just can only machine 16 inches of it that are kind of there next to the um, chuck. And these parts were, uh, the largest one was 29 inches. And so you could machine half and then flip it over and machine the other half while having it basically the full stick out of the machine. And so, plus it had all those little grooves in it and it was very nerve wracking, but we ended up pulling it off without any, any problems. So, um, it was pretty exciting and nerve wracking and we were going back and forth because it was one of those jobs that like, had they not just given us the parts and a PO, we probably would have like turned it down or like bit it like crazy high to the point that we wouldn't Uh have gotten it, but they just gave us the parts and a PO and it kind of forced us to be like, okay, um, I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> and so, uh, so far they've seemed pretty happy and, and haven't, you know, I, I just talked to them the other day and I was like, you guys happy with your parts? And they're like, well, we haven't used them yet, but they look great. And I was like, okay, let me know if there's any problems. Yep. <laughs> so, um, but it's exciting. Um, our, our gun stuff is starting to pick up. Um, did you remember the story I told you about the the gun we were working on? It was an um, an AR-10 Rock River um, that was a six-five Creedmoor. Yeah, the the Nightmare Project. Yes, the Nightmare Project. <laughs> um, so I don't remember where I left you off on that, um, but we we, we it was broke the not nat- the manufacturer. That's okay, yeah. Where I last heard of. So, um, manufacturer told us they they charge sixty an hour. Um, and we're gonna have to buy another tool and we're gonna have to buy a replacement part, um, and then shipping both ways. And, um, on Monday of last week, um, 
my par- business partner called up and asked, you know, hey, how's it going? Where's it at? They said, oh, it's in the mail. It should show up sometime this week and uh, full warranty coverage. And so oh, we didn't have okay. to pay a thing. And so, except for, I think, shipping. I think we still had to pay for shipping there and back. But, um, but Shame. Like everything, every, yeah, <laughs> yeah, everything else was covered. And it was just like, oh. So uh, pretty, pretty happy and excited about that. Um, and we also had a, a fun project where we had a, uh, a revolver. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how familiar you are with some of the different cuts that people make on, on guns, but um, there's this thing called a, a Magna port. And, okay. it's, and what it is, is it's basically um, two, um, what would be the right word for that? They're not triangles, but they're triangles that have the top is smaller than the bottom. I forget the, the word is eluding me. Um Anyways, <laughs> not, kind of like a pyramid, but it doesn't have a pointy top. It's like a pyramid with the top lopped off. Um, a truncated triangle. Yeah, we'll go with that. It'll come to me later on at some point. Um, anyways, regardless of that, um, we had to buy a long reach 1 16th inch end mill and, to mm. do the Magnaport. And we also had to bolt it down to the um, – it's on a weird angle. And so we mm-hmm. couldn't hold it in the vise plus a, a revolver. There's almost no way to hold it in a vise because it's all this weird geometry. Yeah. So that's another one we got on our Instagram page where we ended up bolting it down. And I used some uh, crappy, I say crappy, they're just shop use um, gauge blocks to mm-hmm. get it up to the right angle. And then uh, had a uh, clamp that I held on with it in two points to lock it in place and then did the Magnaport cut on it. And, we were very nervous about that one and it came out perfect. And so nice. um, it was another one of those first time tries uh, and no issue. So I Good. was, I was extremely happy for how well that turned out. So do you use a uh, Saunders machine work fixture plate? I do. I do. Okay. And how did you measure the angle? Did you just you like basically treat it as a sign plate and measure the height or did you like have a, angle finder on the the gun trying to so what we did was um <laughs> thankfully the way it worked out a two inch so for the magna ports they have a range between 35 and 55 degrees that they try to put them on and uh-huh. um thankfully using a two inch gauge block and then we used an angle finder to verify it um got us okay. to like 47 degrees Mm-hmm. 47.5 degrees so like almost the perfect 45 degree angle um and it was close enough and according to their website and their range it was a good spot and it put us so th- the way that that particular one worked is you had the barrel and then it had this like triangular lobe on top of it and having it at that angle put that magnaport cut right where that lobe on top of the barrel kind of met the barrel and so it put it right yeah. in that corner spot so it was like perfect Cool. So, um, and it ended up coming out really good. And it was really, really nerve wracking when we were first running it. But um, we've kind of run into this issue where either the guns machine incredibly well, or they're harder than than can be. And Mm. you just break tooling or it just sounds horrible. Um, We had a 1911 we did where, I mean, we, we, we machined it. We sandblasted it. We 
ran it under Scotch Brite wheels and tried to sand it down, and it was just almost impossible to get the machining marks out of it. And while we were running it, it just sounded horrible on that Tormach. Like we had to slow everything way down, and it just it sounded like we were trying to cut like Inconel or something. I don't know, uh-huh. whatever that stuff was. It was interesting. It was, it was very hard, and it did not like our cutter at all. So, to, to not want to do another one of those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you've somehow developed this business where all of your stock costs like seven hundred dollars because it's a gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is, but I only have to buy it if I mess up. <laughs> that's true. I guess that's, that's better. I don't know if that's better or worse. <laughs> So it's like it's like my profit margins are awesome if nothing goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, I I like my business where my carabiner blanks are two dollars and thirty three cents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it, but it, it's pretty interesting because if if I can get enough of the of this type of business and if I can get my processes down, there's a lot of room to grow that I'm noticing. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I look over the last two months of work that we've done and I would I would be hard pressed to say we've been, you know, extremely busy for the majority of that two months. There's still a lot of meat on the bone and the stuff that we are doing is taking a lot longer than it should in the long run. And so yep. we're, we're starting to get enough work that it's we're realizing it's real easy for us to get overwhelmed. And so mm-hmm. we need to get faster at getting jobs in the door, getting them done and then getting pushed outside the door on the other side. We need to get faster at pushing work through and that'll allow us to take on more work. Um, And so it's, it's, we haven't really noticed that problem before because we haven't had enough work coming in continuously that like we get something, we get it done and then we wait for the next thing or we ask around and try to find more stuff. Um, But now stuff is starting to come through the door a little more organically and it's not as forced. And so now we're finding instances where it's like, okay, we need to get faster at this because there's more stuff coming in the door and we got to get this other stuff out of the door before, you know, we get overwhelmed and, you know, they start stacking up. Yeah. So, um, which is a, it's a good and bad problem, I guess. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's all constraints theory as popularized by the goal, which I simply mm-hmm. read. Um, and, you know, one thing that book, The Goal Doesn't Cover, is the constraint of sales. And when you're a small business and you're first starting out, your first constraint is sales. And it doesn't really matter what else you're optimizing. Um, you know, if you're just starting off and you have a, a Kern, it, you can make less money than somebody with a Tormach if the Tormach is the that person's bottleneck instead of their sales being the bottleneck. Like... If you're not getting the sales, you know, money's not coming in. But then eventually you grow and, you know, you start making more money. You have more sales. Um, suddenly you get to the point where there's something else in your business that is is keeping you from making more money. And depending on your business at a very early phase, it's either your time or your machine time. And mm-hmm. um I don't know, basically one person with a tour mock, it, it could be either pretty arguably depending on the type of your parts. Um, but then, you know, you either have to get more efficient as in terms of like programming and stuff, or you start adding spindles or, you know, get a, you know, trade in your tour mock for a, you know, VF2 or whatever. Um, 
and there's there's always going to be something that's a bottleneck. Yes. But. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much uh, PC building you've you've done, but um, I kind of got into it here a few years back, and that's one of the things they say about PC building is that you're never going to have you're never not going to have a bottleneck, um, but you yeah. can do your best you can to try to make sure that they're all cl- as close to that bottleneck at the same time. And that's when you're running yeah. efficiently um, yes. is, is that, you know, everything can be, anything can be a bottleneck, but you just, the, the, when you get into a problem is when you have one thing that's such a big bottleneck that you're not even touching the capacity of everything else that's affected by yes. it. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, spending money on things that aren't the bottleneck are just a waste of money. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to buy a Kern right now, I would not be making any more money than I am just because I have the million dollar machine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's true. Although there is something to be said. And I, I had a salesperson who came to our shop a, a few months back who, who said this, and I, I think it's true. I think it's also a sales tactic, but I also think it's true. There are those people who will buy machines only when they're at their absolute limit and can't do anything else. And then there's those people that'll go out and buy a machine with no work lined up for it, and they will find the work to fill it up. Yes. And um, I feel like we fall more into that secondary camp because um, we bought the uh, the Haas knowing that there was work out there but not having anything lined up. Yes. And, and so uh, – and I'm definitely seeing more and more of that work come through the door um, – a lot faster than the mill stuff, um, mm-hmm. which um, could be just because of the type of work that's in the area. And it also could be that we can just push that a lot and compete on that a lot better than, than the mill. Just because if we try to charge what everyone else's shop rate is at the same rate for our Tormach, we're just going to be so expensive that no one wants to mess with us. Yeah. So... Anyway, so tell me about your uh, your Kickstarter. Last time we talked, yeah. your Kickstarter was still going on, but you finished, and I would say that you have you have a very healthy margin over your your uh, your hopes and dreams. Yes, I should say. <laughs> yeah, when I launched this thing, I was like, eh, if this goes well and we get lucky, I'll maybe hit ten thousand dollars, and I would have been happy with that. Because, you know, my mm-hmm. last Kickstarter was at like 6,000 or something. And it's like going to 6,000 to 10,000. Like that's a pretty good growth in one Kickstarter. And then this Kickstarter hit 28,000. So in my, like my, I don't want to say my dream goal. Because everybody has this dream when you launch a Kickstarter. Like this could hit $100,000. Um, mm-hmm. But like the most that I could realistically imagine, imagine was $20,000. And like my longer term goal for these Kickstarters has been to do four Kickstarters a year at $20,000 each. And this one hit $28,000. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot during this one, which, you know, means that the next one will be will be better, I hope. So, yeah, I, I'd love to hear some of the lessons learned because um, I know we did our first Kickstarter and. I thought it turned out great, but I realize a lot more that I would do differently. And so I'm interested. You've done a lot more of these than I have and have, have interacted with a lot more people. So what's some of your big takeaways? My first biggest takeaway was just send out product photography. Man, I, I've i always struggled to do product photography. And it's like I know just enough to where I think I can do it myself. 
Um, but it's just not worth my time. And I would spend days doing it. And this time for the entire Kickstarter, all of my product photography was outsourced and it cost me $350. Um, nice. If, if I had done it myself, it would have taken me a solid week and the Kickstarter would not have been as big because they would it would not have been as good. What about advertising? I know we, we've talked about that a couple times. I have come to the conclusion that my advertising did bupkis. Uh, <laughs> I may have picked up enough sales. I do not think it was profitable at all. Um, during the last couple weeks, maybe the last two weeks of my campaign, my growth was like almost perfectly linear. Um, like my, in terms of sales per day. And mm -hmm. I, so when I, when that first started, I had ads on for 50 bucks a day and then mm -hmm. I turned them off, nothing changed. And then I turned them on for $200 a day for a couple of days. And then I turned them off again, straight linear, no change in, in growth rate at all. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I know that ad, it's possible to make ads work, and I don't want to say that these were the highest effort ads ever, so it could have just been a quality issue. But from my experience so far, I will say that there was no return on investment. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I got a lot of organic Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do you think you got that? What What do you think was different about this campaign to compare to other ones that have given you all of the organic growth. So when I designed this product, there were two things that I designed into it from the very beginning to make it a good product to grow on Kickstarter. And mm -hmm. one bright colors. Um, it, it's actually, it's the, some of the core of the better keychains philosophy is that all of my products are going to be super bright colors that makes them very visually interesting. It makes people want to click on them. It catches your mm -hmm. eye on a screen, especially on Kickstarter, where the uh, palette is a very like if you took all of the Kickstarter projects and or like EDC, at least type items and you like average them together, it would just be a titanium stone washed finish because that's what everybody uses. And so I had I mean, I had that as an option as well. But, you know, five out of my six finishes were bright, bright powder coated colors. And I think that helped. The other thing was the price point. And I know that the, from like a, something on the Kickstarter website said this, the most common pledge level on Kickstarter is $25. And I think that gets a little bit lowered like by non-product Kickstarter campaigns. Mm -hmm. So people who are selling movies or albums or whatever. I think that lowers that number a little bit. And so the average Kickstarter back, the, the average Kickstarter pledge for a product I'm guessing is somewhere between 35 and $40. And mm -hmm. that is where I aimed my price point. It was $30 for the stone washed and $36 in both of these plus shipping for the, the powder coated. And I think that added a lot because that's right in the impulse buy range for, for Kickstarter. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good price range to be in for sure. I've noticed that as well. Cause um, we started doing some Etsy sales and um, our products that are selling the most are the ones that are right in that 20 to $30 yes. price range. And they're um, 
they're selling, I'm, I'm selling those can pre- pretty consistently two or three of those a week, um, mm-hmm. which isn't a lot, but at, by the same token, um, it's consistent. And yeah. I feel like if we keep hitting that price range um, with different products that we can get up on there, they'll keep selling at that price range and you'll just grow the variety over time. And eventually just yes. the volume of that will just be uh, massive. Yep. That is exactly my strategy is I want a bunch of items that are all in that price point. Um, again, it, it's cheaper. The, the ideal price range I think is cheaper on Etsy than it is on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I would say 15 to $30 is kind mm-hmm. of that, that good range to aim for on Etsy. That's where it's most impulse buyable, which kind of limits some of the things you can do. Yeah, it really but, does. Um, but yeah, you, you have one item that sells, you know, 40 bucks a week. So then you add a second item and that sells another 40 bucks a week. You add a third item and then, mm-hmm. um, you know, 120 bucks a week and Spilled you just up. have enough items and keep an inventory of them. And it's, I mean, it's obviously not passive income, but it like is pretty close. Yeah, the, the you know, it's not passive in the sense that you have to make the product, but the good news is is that as you get more products, you can batch them and keep them on the shelf and you kind of mm-hmm. know pretty consistently what they're going to do. Um and so you can it becomes mostly uh mostly passive in the sense that like you could easily hire someone if you get a big enough quantity of items to just make them and then you don't have to think about them and then someone else fulfills the orders. Um uh, it, it, Basically, if you get enough products, you can do stuff like that. And that's how companies survive. They get their products and they get people making them. And then for the people that own those businesses, it's all passive. Speaking of companies surviving and Etsy, are you friends with Fidget Things on Instagram? Yes, I am. And I've had some good conversations with him. I have yet to talk to him on like the phone or anything verbal but i've had a lot of really good conversations with him um on instagram i haven't talked to him in a while um but he's uh he's a good guy from everything that i've and all all the interactions i've had with him has been very fun and i've learned a lot so he's a great guy i i met him in ints in person and it's basically exactly like talking to him on instagram um However, so we were talking the other day. He has an item that's called like a chill pill. It mm-hmm. is a magnetic fidget toy. It yeah. looks like a, a pill, except it's giant. Uh, he mm-hmm. had like 25,000 sales on Etsy, something like that, 20,000 sales. I know his store had around 30,000 total sales. And mm-hmm. the chill pill was a large percentage of those. Etsy decided that his product was unsafe and took down his listing. No appeals, really? no nothing. Uh, sorry, you're done. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh my. So he's like, he probably already has it together, but he was scrambling to, uh, get together a Shopify website and get all of his stuff moved over there. But yeah, they took down a bunch of his listings. Why? Just um, cause? So they decided that it was unsafe because it had high powered magnets in it, which is apparently against the Etsy terms of service. Um, really, we, we think that some random person stumbled across it and they didn't understand what it was or the scale of it. And they saw it's a pill with magnets, which 
to be fair, when you describe it that way, does sound a little bit dangerous. Maybe don't put magnets in a pill. Um, but we think someone complained to Etsy about it, and then they had to take it down. So it's just like, oh, that part of his business is gone now. You know, the most, the yeah. biggest part of it. Yeah, and that that brings up a real interesting conversation that I've had with a couple people here recently. Um, I just saw another another gentleman um, on YouTube. He had a woodworking business, and um, he got seventy five to fifty percent of his business through Instagram. He would build projects and he would sell them to people or he'd have people that would reach out to him on Instagram and ask him to do uh, custom builds for them. I think he did like, um, I don't remember what he did, honestly. I just remember it was woodworking, Um, cutting boards and stuff. But anyways, he randomly, um, and this this is back in uh, June of this year, um, he randomly gets an email from Instagram saying, hey, um, your account has been flagged for um, child labor laws and we're shutting it down effective immediately and you have 30 days to try to appeal it. Would you like to appeal? And of course he clicked the button that said, yes, I'd like to appeal. And within 48 hours, it basically said your appeal has been rejected and your account has been deleted. Oh, and, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so he started this four month journey of trying to get it reinstated and Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all these big social media companies, you can't contact them. Like there is no contact me page. There is no email help desk. There is no, um, Hey, can I talk to a human being about what's going on with me? Nothing. Like it's, it's more like a, we'll, we'll contact you. You don't contact us type deal. And after four months of fighting that, and trying to go on the dark web and trying to find emails and all this stuff. Um, he made a YouTube video explaining his story and explaining what was going on in his business and basically said that, I think I'm just, I'm done. Like, you know, he quit his job to start this business and he's like, I got, I got to figure out what to do. Like I'm not going to survive. And one of the people who worked at Instagram, which he didn't share their email reached out to him and said, Hey, I work at Instagram. I might be able to help. And so they ended up getting his account reinstated and um, the problem was Instagram forgot his date of birth. What? Yeah. No. Yeah. They, no. Yes. And so because of that, they couldn't verify his age. And so, and of course he was building and selling products on Instagram. And so because they couldn't verify his age, it assumed that he was a child or that, you know, whatever, and shut him down. Just oh, like that. Man. No, no question, no, no nothing, no appeal, just all because it forgot how old he was. Man, that, oh. But yeah. this is why I'm glad Instagram and YouTube are separate platforms. Also, while I, yeah. ha- why I have a physical newsletter now, in addition mm-hmm. to a podcast. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's there's I've seen a lot of creators who have been hit by stuff. I've heard other stories like this where people are doing really, really well. And then one day someone flips that switch and then they're just like their business is destroyed overnight. Yep. Um, and it, 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 it makes me nervous 
but it also makes me glad that I got so much local stuff as I do. Like there's times yes. where I've, I've, I've looked at um, what we do and go, man, I'd like to, you know, stop doing all the local job stuff and go straight into the product stuff and hit it as hard as I can. Um, Cause that was my, that was the whole reason I started this business was I wanted to do product based stuff and not job shop based stuff. Um, but there's something to be said about a, a business model that is not affected by the whims of the internet mm-hmm. to that extent. And so I like having kind of a foot in both sides of that, both different, both camps basically. Yeah. And so. that's why um, one of my goals, you know, basically as soon as I'm done messing with the Kickstarter is to start getting into brick and mortar uh, mm-hmm. retail and, you know, grow both like an internet based business, but also like a traditional business. Yeah. Yeah. And I should, I, I, I've said this for a long time. I need to get my deck defenders into some casinos around here. Cause we're kind of mm-hmm. close to Oklahoma and there's a lot of casinos over there. And I think they would do really well in that environment. Cause that is kind of right up the alley of the deck defenders. So, and that's a, that's a brick and mortar business. And there's a lot of people in there that spend a lot of money. So yes, <laughs> I am not one of them, but I will gladly sell to those people. <laughs> but uh, um, speaking of spending lots of money, I bought a truck today. Oh, what'd you get? I got a two thousand and one um, Silverado. Very <laughs> it's got nice. Ninety thousand miles on it. Uh, it doesn't have a parking brake. Um, but it was very cheap. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's hard so, to find these days. It, exactly. It, it popped up at a, um, local used car dealer that I drive by every day and mm-hmm. they originally put it up for 3,500 and I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. I would consider that. And then they marked it down to 29 and it's like, okay, we really need a truck. You know, I've got seven acres. We have animals. My wife wants bigger animals. Like. I can't go pick up a plywood right now without cutting it up in the Menards parking lot. Yeah. Um, so it, getting a truck had been on our list for a long time. And then this one just showed up and it was, you know, cheaper than anything I could find anywhere. Like right yeah. now in this area, you cannot find a cheap used truck. Um, yeah. And so I was like, Do you know what? I think I will jump on this one while it's there. It's not well, the perfect time to buy a new vehicle, but speaking speaking of vehicles, last week I drove my first Tesla. Ooh, did you? I did. So I, I took my my car to the dealership to get an oil change, uh-huh. um, and they closed at six, but the sales place the 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 business closed at seven online, but their service department closed at six. Okay. And I didn't know that. And so I got there at about 6.05, 6.10. And I asked someone, I was like, hey, uh, can you guys help me get my car so I can make pay? I, I'll pay you guys and then I'll take my car and go. And they're like, well, there's only one person left in the sales department that has a <laughs> credit card machine and they're with a customer. I was like, okay, yeah. well, I'll just wait. And so I was waiting with a couple of the salesmen. And they're like, and I saw that they had a used Tesla and I was like, ooh, that's pretty cool. Well, the salesman's like, do you want to go look at it? And so we went and looked at it, and we're, we're walking around it, and he's like, here's the keys. Let's go for a drive. 
so I got to, I got to drive it, and it was That's uh, cool. It was it was a Tesla Model Three with eighty five thousand miles, and um, it was a long range. It was not okay. The um, like double motor it, high power it, it, one. It was a dual motor, but it wasn't a high powered dual motor. I think okay because it it said dual motor on the back, but they were telling me that like it wasn't the fast one. Yeah. And they had another Tesla there that was the fast one. Um, I didn't drive that one, but I drove this one and, and I was riding around with the sales guy and he's like, why don't you give it a little gas? And I, I just slammed it. <laughs> and I think I startled him just a little bit. <laughs> it had a really good punch. I was like, okay, this is like, this is not a car. This is a go-kart. Like <laughs> that's, the, that's the exact yep. feeling you get when you're in it. Is you, just, you just get a big smile and you go, okay, this is a go-kart. Not a car. <laughs> when, when I was buying this truck, so I was at the dealership and they had a couple golf carts. They had a golf cart that cost more than I paid for the truck. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I found that funny. Oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this truck costs less than my laser. Um, there's a lot of things that I, I, I'm about to place an order at Send Cut Send that's going to cost more than this truck. So it's funny. I I'm, I'm glad I found it. Yeah, you're it'll probably you're, you're, get ten thousand. You'll have more material for your carabiners than you did for your truck. <laughs> yep. Though it's I did put in one hundred and fifty dollars worth of gas, so yeah, there's a cost well, there. You know, it's 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 such a weird world we live in when you consider the fact of how cheap vehicle like vehicles are expensive, but at the same time they're also very cheap for what they are. They really are, yeah. Like it's it's the weirdest thing when you like when you start making stuff and you start pricing stuff out, and then you look at like commodity items that people buy all the time. It's like, how do they make it so cheap? Like, like, yeah, what is going on? Like, I I know how they make it so cheap. Like, I, I've I mean, I've watched how it's made. I know how it's made. <laughs> But at the same time, it's just mind-boggling the scale of it all and how they're able to get those prices down as much as they do. Imagine if someone were to send you an RFQ that had every piece of a truck on it. Like, oh yeah, like a million no, dollars. It, it would. It'd be so expensive. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <sighs> but I don't know. I. I just have I have a lot of fun seeing all the different parts that we can make, and I, I love adding parts to my. Um, you said add all the RFQ for a truck. It made me think of all the parts on a truck, and like I, I love that I'm slowly building out my display case of all the parts that we've made. Uh-huh. So like if I make a couple extra, I'll just throw them up in my display case, and it's slowly growing over time. <laughs> and I love it when people come visit the shop, and I'm like, "Here's our display case." I'm like, "Oh, that's cool." I'm like, "We made everything on there," and they're like, "What?" Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So. You just need to slowly start like machining a Corvette or something. Like, oh yeah, there's got to be some car out there where there's CAD models of everything. So <laughs> I, I have a '93 Fox Body Mustang, and it, it okay. has been my my dream to like tear that car down to the nuts and bolts and to the bare frame, and then like scan it all into CAD and like build it in my own image, kind of a thing. Like I I have wanted to do that for as long as I can remember. And like, like a lathe, so you can literally start with the nuts and bolts. 
Yes. <laughs> Make them all five-sided heads just, yeah. to, just for fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll do I'll do uh metric threads with uh with standard head sizes like yes. so I have metric thread <laughs> with the standard head on it. It's like, um, like that. So I had a Sherline lathe um for a while and the the thread on the lead screws is a six millimeter dash 20 thread. So it's a six millimeter diameter, but it has a thread pitch that's the same as a quarter 20. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like this weird mashup of metric and imperial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are some weird mashups out there. Yes, there are. They can be so annoying. I, I like. I, I had a part that I was working on today, and it's got um, number ten screws to hold it together. But then it's got all these electrical connections, and they're all in metric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so all the screws for those are metric, and so it's just a mashup of standard and metric threading all over it. I've done things like that. Um, at, oh, so another thing we should talk about is my day job. But at my day job, a lot, almost everything that we are putting on our units is metric. Um, mm-hmm. But we design our units in Imperial, so that leads to a lot of weird back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I've been busy the last two weeks or so with my uh, old day job again because I'm training my replacement there. And so I have been working part-time there. I was doing three days a week at, at old day job. Um, this week is my first week of going to two days a week. And then I will be done at the end of October. Awesome. So that'll give me way more time than I've had. So what about for your shop? What's your, what's your shop schedule looking like with the, with your current order of Kickstarter items and you're preparing for your next Kickstarter? How have you scheduled all that out? Have you kind of figured out like timelines and things that you want to get stuff done at? Um, no, I'm not that organized with scheduling. <laughs> uh, I probably should be. I, I've been playing with like my production process and I've been doing it in small scale for a while. So mm-hmm. like I've been making carabiners. I had a little fixture where I was making just two at a time. Did, did you laser and, cut that? And yeah, so I, part of that process is I laser cut a whole bunch of different boxes of various sizes and shapes. So this one, for example, is for finished carabiners. It'll fit, I think it's a hundred of them, uh, just to keep them nice and safe and protected. Okay, that's That'll be, I think, about a day's production, give or take, if my math is right. You can get a hundred carabiners done in a day? I, I hope so. Let's see. So it was about 90 minutes for a pallet of 16. Um... So what's 100 divided by 16 is 6.25. 6.25 times 90 is 562. 562 divided by 60 is nine hours. So I can keep the machine running for nine hours a day um, or 10 hours a day. Then I can make 100 carabiners a day. And let's see, I don't... So if I'm working eight hours a day, I come in first thing in the morning, put a new pallet on, hit go. Um, 
you know, change that every 90 minutes. Then at the end of the day, when I leave, I start a new palette. That gets me to, yeah, nine and a half hours, 90 minutes past eight hours. So even just working eight hour days, that's possible. And okay. like, it would be really easy to like, you know, go to dinner, start a, or start a palette, then go to dinner and then just come back later and start another palette. So I could potentially even get like 12 hours of machine time a day. Yeah. And you're, you're five minutes or five minutes in a 560 apart, five minutes, 5.6 minutes apart is way less than the 10 or 12 minutes we originally yes. talked about. So how'd you yep, get your machine down time down so much more? So it, I've gotten so much flack over my UV resin fixturing, um, but the UV resin fixturing is more rigid than the Mighty Bite clamp was. And so I've been mm -hmm. able to push feeds and speeds harder. Um, I'm now running at, I think, four inch per tooth on that feed mill and at 300 SFM, which in titanium is kind of crazy. Um, and I am now taking the maximum depth of cut that I can on it, which is only six thou because it's a feed mill. But that's uh, awesome. Before I was running that quite a bit more conservatively. That is awesome. You, cause you say you've cut a lot of flack for your, your resin? Yes. Every, like, <laughs> I, I show it's so like I put that video on YouTube of the UV, UV resin fixture in 100% mm -hmm. of the comments were alternate ways I could do the same thing. <laughs> it's like you guys oh. are missing the point here. <laughs> no. um, I, I think people yeah. just don't understand how fast it actually is. That could be. That could be. I'm definitely one of those people that probably looked at that and was like, man, there's got to be a better way. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I look at that and I go, man, there's, there's, like, I really do like the resin idea for a lot of stuff. Um, it's it's just that time element of it that I'm not familiar with. Like, if it takes a long time to set up, is it worth it? For the for the onesie twosie stuff, I think it's fantastic. For production stuff, I have a hard time seeing it work well. But if what you're saying is true, then that's fantastic. Like, there's nothing to complain about that. So I think the thing that people don't understand is the resin I am using is not epoxy. It is not sticky. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually, I would say, the biggest weakness is if I had high machining forces on these parts, it wouldn't work. It would suck them out of the fixture. Um, but the feed mill, all of the forces are axial, pushing it down mm -hmm. into the fixture. And mm -hmm. the resin is basically just filling in any voids between the, the part and the, the fixture. So that mm -hmm. it's like it's locked rigid. In. There's nowhere for it to move. It's like milling it from plate. Gotcha. Um, and then and and so people think, okay, yeah, it would hold it just fine, but they think it would be really hard to release it. And it's not. You can actually release them mostly just with compressed air, because when you so the resin is sitting. How do I wear this? I have like a funnel shape that goes down and directs the resin beside the part, but like in the vertical channels between the part and the fixture. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of the funnel, on the top of it, like it's just my, you know, shiny aluminum fixture that I'm not cleaning or anything. Mm -hmm. And so like there's, there's no tooth or anything for this resin to, to dig into. Mm -hmm. And by blowing compressed air, like onto that seam there, it, it blows air and kind of separates the parts from me. And then I have a pry bar that I um, designed specifically for this fixture using parametricproducts.com. And then you can purchase it on Etsy. 
um, that's specifically designed to fit in this fixture, and I can just pop them right out. That's awesome. So, it, I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit slower than using a screwdriver to unlock a Mighty Bite, but not a whole lot. No, no, that doesn't sound bad. So, do you ever see yourself getting to a point where you have a second machine? One for products and one for uh, prototyping? So, a new machine is going to come in the middle of next year, um, give or take. This isn't, like, it's not official. There's not, like, a PO. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have dibs on a pocket NC beta unit, uh, like to uh, purchase, I have dibs to purchase it. And I can see that machine as being my primary production machine. Yeah. Um, I, I looked into all of the different options, like get a 440, get a used 1100. Um, and I mean, I would love to, but I don't think it's what I need at this point, especially come going back to our constraints theory and um, the machine is not my constraint right now. My depending on what stage I'm in, it's either me or sales. Yeah. Uh, Right now it's me, but eventually it'll go back to being sales again. Now, do you have any idea what that's going to cost you? Have you like, have they released any of that or can you Divulge any of that I know the machine is in the 70k arena, and I know a beta unit will be cheaper. So, do you know anyone you could ask politely to get me on the beta units? <laughs> yeah, just send them a message. You're like, hey, I want a beta unit. Um, oh, really? Is it that easy? Yeah. Um, and you're not. Oh, wait. You're. Are you in Arkansas? Is that where you are? Mm-hmm. Okay, you're a little ways away from them. For some reason, I had in my head that you were in like North Dakota, but no, that's not where you are. No. And that's not where no. Arkansas is. I'm in Arkey. Yeah. Which people, if some people from Arkansas, if you say that, they hate it. <laughs> in Arkey? <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, well, I'm going to have to message them and ask them, what, what's it take to get a beta unit? Because <laughs> I think that would yeah. be sweet. Um. I so here's here's something I've been thinking about. Um, should I get a robot? And I, I was thinking about the Tormach robot for machine tending. With my theory being is eventually we can set up the Tormach and the Pocket NC in their own little little pallet pool, kind of mm-hmm. like John Grimsmo's little setup. Like he has a Speedio and a Kern. I can have my mm-hmm. little Pocket NC and my Tormach. It's the budget version. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but since like a lot of the, when you hear about the difficulties people have implementing robots, it is because they have a product already and they are trying to figure out how to make the robot design their product. Mm-hmm. But the way I do things, I design things for my manufacturing processes mm-hmm. and I could design a robot you know, I if I know that I have a robot, I can design my products to be robot friendly, whatever that mm-hmm. you know looks like. Um, maybe you know, design custom little fixtures that you know are like three inches by six inches, and mm-hmm. have those just like vacuum down, so you can load up a whole bunch of those fixtures. Then the robot can load them into the machine, and they can just be vacuum fixtured into the machine. Yeah, I think. 
I think getting a robot is something that is going to happen and will need to happen for you. Um, when to get that robot is a harder question. Um, I would say as a, as a limiting factor, I would not want to push back the beta machine Mm -hmm. over the robot. Agreed. But if it came down to you getting a, a second machine sooner or getting a robot and having your machine running more on its own with a robot tending it, I would do that in a heartbeat. Because an, another robot is basically the price of getting another machine, at least like a Tormach machine. And if you can, if you're only there for half the day, but you get a robot and let your machine run basically 24 seven, it's like getting another machine. And then you have the robot to learn and develop with. Yes. And the Tormach so, robot's only 20 K. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not quite the price. It's not being a cobot, but yeah. 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 But, I mean, it, honestly, I know, something to think about. Those cobots aren't as expensive as I thought they were. They're like thirty into... to fifty k. Yeah, which I thought they were more in the seventy to hundred range. I mean, I'm sure you can get into that range if you want to. I'm, I'm sure you can too. But the the fifty k range is, I mean, if you're for what they can add, um, I think that's a, a pretty good price. Yeah, that's a that's a machine operator for a year. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So. The other thing I've been thinking about, sorry, the other thing I've been thinking about in terms of new machines is what can I get that nobody else in the same market has? And, you know, a five axis, I mean, not nobody else has a five axis, but there's not very many people on Etsy making small keychain accessories on a five axis machine. Mm -hmm. So I can do things that they can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, what else is there? Do I look into she, metal 3D printing? Um, I was just looking at that today, actually. My, I think my information's way out of date on that. Cause last I heard was like a decade ago and the machines were like 300 K. I don't they're know. Still expensive. Like don't, now. don't get me wrong. They're still expensive. Okay. Um, but are they like 150 K expensive or are they 300 K expensive? Still? It, it depends. Um, I was looking at like that Mark Forge one that yeah. is like FDM and then centering. Um, and that's probably the cheapest metal 3D printer that I've seen though, so far. And it's a completely different animal compared to like the laser centering ones where you have a bed of powder and then you need like an uh, like a EDM machine to cut them off. Yep. Um, which... Um, did you did you watch Titans of CNC? I do not. You do not? They just yeah. released a video um, a week or two ago, or maybe it was last week, where they said uh, 3D printing for production parts, and they gave an example of making 500 3D printed um, brake levers for mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they could fit a hundred of them on their build plate at one time. And it was, it came out to where each 3d printed part was about 25 minutes apart. 3d printed 3d printer time. 
and they had a hundred per build plate. Um, and so they could do 500 a week on one machine or something like that. Um, yeah. And so it's like, okay, those are numbers that start to make sense for something. Yes. Uh, so, and I mean, I could always go to like Shapeways and get parts from them and then do some extra machining on them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like, I, I just, it's, it's coming. I will say this. It's from everything that I've seen, the prices are coming down and it will get to a point where we will have access to that as a smaller shop more readily. And the sooner we can get that kind of stuff and the sooner you can adopt that kind of stuff, I think it'll just put you that much more ahead of the curve. Like there's so many trends and curves that have come in my lifetime that I've gotten into too late. I'm, I'd love to get on the front end of something for a change. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying like one of design the everything's core philosophies is be different. And it doesn't like at some point I'm just like, it's hard to separate just being different for the sake of being different from being different for a purpose. And I don't really care. So I'm going to be different for the sake of being different. And I'm just counting on it working out basically. Yeah. Um, And so like everybody has a mill, everybody has a lathe, everybody can get parts laser cut. What can't people do? And it's like, well, there's not a lot of 3D printing, metal 3D printing out there. Um, yeah, there's not small not scale. There's not a lot of injection molding. I I sense. would love, I'd love to get desktop injection molding machines. Yeah, um, like there's a couple that I've had my eyes on. I um, mean, there's not a lot that are made, and I've actually thought about making injection molding machines for, um, because I feel like there's there's a market out there for it, and some people have tried it, but their implementations of it, I feel like. Um, are either crude and I could easily match or um, oversimplified to a point where they don't work well as their intended product. They look nice, but they don't perform as well as they could. Yeah. Same. That's been my, my thought. So um, I think it, but like I've always said, like I want to make some big, cool stuff but I got to get good at making simpler things and getting everything figured out. That way, when I go to take on something that's a lot bigger and more complicated, um, then I have somewhat of an idea of what I'm doing. <laughs> so I don't dive head first into, and, and so I have a way to fund it. Um, Cause it's a lot easier to invest in making something as simple as a deck defender, a pry bar or a carabiner than going out and making a full-fledged injection mold machine and trying to sell that. <laughs> a little more capital required for that. Yeah. I Building... What do I call it? Building, like, building machines for smaller makers has been like a business... Like, it's a backup business idea for me. I would love to do an injection molder. I would love to do... Um, oh, what else? Anyway, like stuff that's kind of in that vein, you know, a desktop Mm -hmm. CNC, a 3D printer, um, but more of like the weird stuff, like a pad printer. I'd love to do a pad printer. Um, Pad printer. Yes. What's a pad printer? So that's how, that's how if you're like doing large scale printing, like on a keyboard, I think those are probably pad printed. 
Um, oh, go check oh, are out you talking Rick Tactical? Yeah, That's yeah. Wrong. Okay, those things that look like they're gumdrops. That yes, like the, the white gumdrop looking things. Yeah, or, or, yeah. Okay. Um, yes, I have seen those things, and and they're like weird and cool. <laughs> and a lot of these things you can get from China, but with like no support. Yeah, so yeah I, I would true. love to like provide these things and then build really good support around it. Yeah. So if design yeah, everything goes out of business, that's going to be second business. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I've, mm, I have a couple of different business ideas that they're a lot larger scale than my current operation that they can't con- can support. Um, but they're like kind of some dream goals that I think would be a ton of fun to do. Um, yeah. And they're kind of along that, that line of making bigger stuff. Um, but we'll see. Some of them, some of my ideas I'm trying to hold a little closer to my chest because they're a little more doable in the shorter to yeah. long term, shorter to medium term. Um, and I think they'd be just a ton of fun. But we'll see. Well, right now, focus. Yeah. When you've made millions off of this business, then you can start focusing on other things. But... Like yeah. right now, right now I'm just focusing on better keychains. Yeah. Um, I guess except for two current projects, but <laughs> I have two white label projects going on. Um, oh, okay. Other than those. That's awesome. Than- How'd you get the white label projects? Did someone find you and reach out to you or? Yeah. One guy. Um, so one guy is my former business partner, Scott. And I made those meeples and he was like, those are super cool. And we started talking about doing a Kickstarter for him. And it's like, I don't really want to do Kickstarter for the meeples. I've got enough Kickstarter stuff to do on my own. And why don't you do a Kickstarter stuff for them or Kickstarter for the meeples? And it actually mm-hmm. has transformed for now. He's not going to be doing meeples. He's going to be doing Catan pieces, but um, okay. he hopefully he'll be able to start a like precision board piece empire over there. And then I can just make them for him. <laughs> um, and then the other guy, I like made some, random parts for them. I have some videos on them. They were like hexagon dial things. It's on my mm-hmm. YouTube channel. And he wanted to do some tape measures and sell those. Some like high end, like we called it a gentleman's tape measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, oh, another thing I bought was a 3D printer, by the way. I bought I bought a Prusa Mini. And awesome. that thing is so much better than any other printer I've ever used. But so you I've have experience with 3D printers? Yes. Yeah, I had yeah. a um I have a Raise 3D M2 Plus, which was my first printer. It's massive, but mediocre as a printer. Um, but it's really big, which is nice. And then I have a um like a monoprice mini. Yeah. Or uh I I, I don't know. It's not an MP mini, ha- it's the normal monoprice. I have two 3D printers for the business and they're both running right now on a, a job that we're working on. So we actually have a, a guy who wants us to machine out some metal parts. And he was like, yeah, I, w- I want to have someone 3D print them first. And I was like, we can do that too. And so we got the job to 3D print them and then we're going to machine out the metal versions of them after he gets the 3D nice. printed in his hands and is happy with them. So yeah, I I've been I've been printing tape measure prototypes, not all week, but for the last couple of days. 
and I've basically just been trying to get, so I'm taking the guts out of a, a tape measure and putting them into mine. And I'm basically oh, okay. just trying to get to the point where like it feels right. And I haven't really started on the look yet. I have concept sketches, but I'm still not, still not set on the look. It's, it's kind of hard to make a tape measure that looks different, but without adding extra features, like the, the standard tape measure design is about as minimalist as it gets when you start taking it apart. Yeah. So it's like, how do I do this? How do I do this different? Um, is there a way you could make it longer and skinnier and do kind of an oval, more ovalish shape? So I had a sketch of that, but it wasn't really as a practicality standpoint. Basically, basically it kind of looked like one of my carabiners. A lot of my products look like this. I don't know if you noticed that, but I do a lot of these uh, op rounds. And basically it was like the tape measure part was over on this side here. And then this side here was a handle. It was like one of those dog leashes. That's what it looked like. Yeah. Um, the retractable dog leash is is kind of what it ended up being. Yeah, but could you um, could you do something that kind of followed that shape or would that like with the Ugh. tape inside it? Mm-hmm. Like if you could make I'm it sure, thinner. I'm sure it could, but not with the way I'm stealing the guts. Because the tape measures I have, the reason I like them is they actually have a spool on the inside, a plastic spool. Uh, which makes them a lot easier to handle like from taking them apart and putting them together. And it's, I don't know. It just works very nicely and neatly. Yeah. Yeah. Like and making it, out. making it as an oval shape, they'll probably, you'll probably have some sliding friction as it's wrapping around that. That'll wear it out faster. Yeah. The circle is really the ideal shape. It's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Um, or, or really a circle with a flat on one side. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think what I'll probably do is do like a an L shape that's rounded, and that way the L shape will be a square. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if you're, I don't know, nailing two two by fours together, you can check if they're square with that side, and then yeah, and then the rest will be a tape measure. But yeah, I was just so, trying to think if there's anything else you could include in it. Are you trying to have it as a, a on all metal ex, uh, exterior? Yeah, there'll be probably aluminum. Um, are they going to be doing some special ones out of brass or something? But are they are they going to be powder coated or um, anodized or anything along those lines? I think these ones. I think these ones will probably be just um, tumbled. Maybe polished, actually. That's something I've been experimenting polished more. Polished raw with aluminum? Okay, That's yeah, not going to go well. No, not for go long. Well. No. Um, now, what you could do is um, aluminum, polished aluminum PVD coated would look really that's cool. true. That would or look... I could put a clear powder coat over it. Or clear powder coat, but um, PVD, I've been kind of going down the PVD rabbit hole. And um, I kind of want to send some stuff out and PVD all the things and see how it turns out. Yeah, that's that's an interesting idea. Um, I'll probably just go with stonewashed because I want it to look like metal. That's my thing is as soon as you powder coat here, for example, this is not a plastic wrench, but you couldn't tell 
Yeah. Um, That's it true. just looks plasticky as soon as you powder coat it. Yeah. And traditionally, as a setup piece, I run a wrench through my powder coating setup. If you're wondering why I have a yellow wrench. <laughs> I also have an orange yeah. wrench or a couple of them. And maybe a blue <laughs> wrench. But So uh, the the local guy that does the uh, YouTube lawn care stuff, mm-hmm. I was talking with him. And we might tear apart his real mower and uh, bling it out with some PVD. Ooh covered parts that would be cool yeah you can even just coat. yeah we'll see I, we're I trying bet. you could totally take a lawnmower blade and coat them and be like this is now a high performance ceramic coated blade yeah <laughs> we've thought about doing that or honestly pvd coatings is, are used on end mills so imagine mm-hmm. having a pvd coated, oh yeah that makes sense a pvd coated uh lawnmower blade <laughs> Oh, that'd be awesome. Like that nice gold <laughs> coating that gets used on aluminum end mills. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, bling bling blades. Yeah. That'd be a good name for them too, bling bling blades. Bling bling blades. <laughs> See, now this is marketing genius. This would totally sell. <laughs> Just because it's would actually, so weird. And, and that would work really well on the real mowers, the ones that are like the drum, because you see the drum. And so yeah. you have a bling bling blades. Oh, that would be so... Yes, yes. We have your new business. You need to not focus, despite what we were just saying, and just do this, just because I want to yeah. see one. Yeah, no, I'll have to talk to him about that. I think that'd be great. Yeah, I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to do that. But um, Okay, but going back to tape measures for a second. So, you know, it's not his design. It's my design. I own it. I can do whatever I want with it, and he'll be selling these and... My thought process right now is instead of doing another carabiner launch right after this other one is I'm going to do tape measures for a Kickstarter event called make 100 where you can mm-hmm. sit where they, basically you promise to limit yourself to a hundred items or a hundred special editions of something. That's what we actually did with our deck defenders. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about doing a hundred tape measures but I want to use, I want to have some sort of algorithmically generated feature on them. And I don't know what that would look like yet. Um, maybe some sort of algorithmically generated like uh, ISO grid or not ISO grid. Um, could you or combine like a flowery pattern? Sorry. Could yeah, you combine what? 3D printing into these and have them have like a skeletonized look that's. I could. Ge- generated and then each one is unique and you can see the internals and if you've already got the plastic cylinder in the center that's holding it all you could just Mm -hmm. have something where you can see the blade as it's winding up that would be so cool as you're winding and unwinding it like if the the outer round of it it is one thing i've never seen i've never seen a clear tape measure no that's not true never mind i have not a not a not a clear one, but one where you can see the the thing as it's winding in and out. Like maybe not the sides as transparent, but just the just the top and around it. Like as like yeah, where you can kind of see it as it's. I think that would be cool. That is cool. Um, one thing I do have on these is I'm not use I don't I don't have a lock button, but on the bottom of it I have a little like finger slot mm-hmm. so that you can just kind of stop the tape with your finger. Which isn't mm-hmm. something that I invented. Like that's been around. 
but yeah. it's just a much simpler way of doing a lock. Mm-hmm. And I think a little bit more intuitive. Yeah. But I think that would, I think that would do well, like a 3d printed case for a tape measure. That that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, I will think about that, but I want to do, I want to do something that's a little bit more out there for make 100. And then that'll give me like an extra month or two to, um, get the next carabiner together. Yeah. If you do that, you should try some of those generative design softwares out mm-hmm. there. Cause then you could generate like all the different patterns of things on them. I, so I talked to N topology for a long time at IMTS. Mm-hmm. Um, and N topology does lattices and generative design and all that kind of stuff. And they were basically like, nobody uses our process for milling, but we have the tools to theoretically make it possible. Um, and so I'm really tempted to go that route. The only problem is it's like, I, they, I didn't actually get a price from them at the time, but from various sources of on the internet, I've seen it being from somewhere between $7,500 a year to like $220K a year. Yeah. So, I don't know. But again, it's something that nobody else can do and it would look really different. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. The alternative yeah. is I figure what, out some way of doing it in fusion. What, what's your price point that you're trying to hit on these? Have you figured, have you thought about that? No, but these aren't going to be cheap. They're not going to be and cheap. And we have lost Alex people. I I can hear you. Are you can you hear me? Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. Alex. I'm here. <laughs> AJ. <laughs> this is this is great podcasting. Um I think I can send him a message. I don't know how. <clears throat> message. I well. can't. And Those of you who cannot see my screen, I can here. see that he is definitely talking. I see you. I hear AJ, you. I am here. I see you. I hear you. <laughs> I do not see or hear you, Alex, slash AJ. Sorry, I'm reading your name and your name is Alexander <laughs> on your thing. Okay. Well, it looks like Alex has run in, or AJ, sorry, I'm reading his name for those of you who are watching this. And so I'm going back and forth. I think he prefers AJ. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and do the outro now. So for all of those that have hung out with us for this long, um, thanks for hanging out uh, and for listening to us. I'm having the technical difficulties. This is weird. How am I having the tech? Okay, let me try loading. Uh, well, hang on. <laughs> this is just great podcasting right now. <laughs> uh, you guys can probably see me okay, and um, hear me. He can't hear me apparently, but I think can see me, and I can te- I can uh, message him. If if I reload this, is it going to lose all the recordings that we've done so far? No, it's definitely not, but he can't hear me say that. Um, okay.
Nope, now I'm just here with myself. We probably should have done an outro at this point, but can you hear me now? Hey, okay. I could hear and see you the whole time. And but I got the alert that was like, hey, something's wrong, but it just flicked off and then on. And then you couldn't hear me anymore. And <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, you'll have to listen to our episode to understand what or to, to hear what I was saying to you. <laughs> I mean, I basically it was basically me talking to myself or talking to you and you not listening. <laughs> I could hear you, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh i do have one more thing to add really quickly here before we end for the people who stuck through that mayhem you're ready you're ready for a aj makes dumb mistake story so i started machining the the pallets for the production of my my carabiners and the very first tool on it you know it, it was like an hour long tool path i started it, i walked away i came back it was broken like oh that's not good it was an old tool i figured it was worn so i just stuck another tool in there hit go came back it broke it's like okay something's actually wrong i went through i tracked down the issue in my code it it was just like a a, a heights tab issue where it wasn't roughing down as far as it should okay easy fix put another end mill in hit go come back it's broken i look at the date of my code i ran the same code I didn't I didn't repost my fixed code. <laughs> no, I I did that at least. <laughs> yeah, no, I just forgot to repost the updated code. <laughs> on the bright side, on the bright side it was a uncoded 3 flu 8th inch end mill. It's probably the cheapest tool that I own. I think they're like 7 bucks. <laughs> Mhm. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I, I've done that before. Uh in I think some 
304 stainless and um, some mystery steel shaft collars. And it's, yeah, the same thing. As soon as you lose one drill bit in that part, you just need to throw it away because it's it's work hardened so much that unless you're using carbide tools, which we weren't, like it's just, you're just going to break your next tool too. But I learned that lesson. Yeah, take us out. Bye.